Uh, grades three through three and four, you are dismissed to your class uh, this morning. Uh, you can go ahead and head out. Uh, the rest of us, I would encourage you to grab your Bibles and open to the book of First John, chapter three. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you need one or, or you'd like one this morning, if you raise your hand, someone would be happy uh, to bring you one. Um, we we like you to follow along in your Bible uh, for a couple reasons. One is, is we like you to see that what we are saying is coming directly from God's word. We, we hope you, you trust us as, as pastors. Uh, but more than anything, we want your trust to be not, not in us, but in God's revealed word to us. And so we just encourage you to, to follow along. See it for yourself. See it. Think about it. Wrestle with it for yourself as we uh, talk about it. Uh, but we're in the midst of a series about the holiness of God. On uh, week one, so two weeks ago, Pastor X preached about who God is in his holiness, what it means for him to be holy. Last week, he preached about who we are then in relation to God's holiness, how he is so infinitely holy, and how we in our sin are so not holy. And because of that, there's this great chasm, this great gap between us, and he showed that image uh, where there's that gap. There's God on one side, man on one side, and, and there's separation between them. And he, he asked the question, how then can we as sinful people be reconciled to this holy God if we are so sinful? And he, he of course, shared the gospel saying that it is only through faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross that we are reconciled to God, united to him in his holiness while we were yet sinners. This week then, uh, I have the privilege of kind of preaching the, okay, we believed in Jesus, we're Christians, now what sermon? That's kind of what this is. Um, and so by the way, as we go through this series, I mentioned this first service as well, uh, but if you're a reader, there's a book I would commend to you uh, on the holiness of God. It's called The Holiness of God uh, by R.C. Sproul. Uh, I've read it. It's one of my personal favorites. I, I would commend it to you, and I promise you it will, it will bless you and edify you. And I, I promise you will walk away with a greater appreciation for the holiness of God. Um, I gave one copy. I have two copies. I gave one copy away to, to someone after the first service. I have another copy at home, so I'd be happy to lend that one out. Or uh, encourage you to go buy that book yourself. It, it will be well worth your time. The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Uh, but today, again, I had the, the task of kind of preaching the we're Christians, now what sermon. Um, and to do that, I, like I said, I want to turn to the book of 1 John. 1 John is one of the most practical, I think, and easy to understand books in the whole Bible. Uh, John was the, one of the closest disciples to Jesus. He wrote the Gospel of John, and this is decades later now that he's writing this letter to churches. Remember, he's writing this as someone who was with Jesus, who was close to Jesus. He had touched him with his hands, seen him with his eyes, heard him with his ears. And now he's relaying this message onto the church. And I think you'll see in the passage we read that it, John is very straightforward and very practical. And very easy to understand. So if you're struggling right now with, I don't really know where to go next in my personal devotions, maybe try First John. Very easy, very practical. Before I begin, 
and before I read this, I want to kind of give you a, a, a layout of where we're going. I want to give you the three main points I want to make this morning. Three main points I want to make this morning from these three verses. One, we have a status. Two, we have a destiny. And then three, we have a duty. And I want to show you those three points from these three verses. That being said, follow along as I read these three verses. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. i start with verse 1 and point 1. We have a status. Look how John begins. He begins verse 1 with a command. You may not be able to, to see it in your translation, but it's, it's a command to see something, to, to look at something and ponder it, to, to behold it in our minds and in our hearts. And well, what is it that we are to see? He goes on, what kind of love the Father has given to us. John begins with this command, look at the Father's love, see the Father's love, think about the Father's love, behold his love for us. The language here is such that he's, he's calling us to, to see it and ponder it and to be amazed by it. See how great a love the Father has for us. If you're reading the New Living Translation, that's why it'll say, see how very much our Heavenly Father loves us. Danny Aiken, a commentator on this verse, said, God's love is foreign to humankind in that we cannot understand the magnitude of such love. It astonishes, it amazes, it creates wonder within those who properly reflect upon it. And that's what John's calling us to do, to properly reflect upon the love of God and to be amazed by it. And so what is this love that God has given to us? How is it shown to us? Where do we, where do we see it? John goes on. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. In our, our culture now, it's kind of our therapeutic culture. It's kind of common uh, to, to hear it said that, well, we're, we're all just God's children. We are, we are all created, and we're all just his children. And that sounds nice, and that sounds loving. But the reality is, when you look at Scripture, the reality is that all of us, every, every person, while being created in, in, the, in the image of God, while bearing his image, the reality is that in our sin, left to ourselves, we are children of wrath. Ephesians 2, verse 3 says that. It says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and that we are children of wrath. Objects of God's wrath because of our great sinfulness and because of his infinite holiness. That's what Rex talked about last week. But the love of God is such that while we were his enemies, 
While we were dead in our sins, while we were children of wrath, he sent his son to bear that wrath on the cross so that we could be adopted into his family and then called his children. And so what makes this love so amazing is how we go from being children of wrath to then being called God's children. This is a new status we've been given. This is where the status comes into play. We have the the status God's child now. The word called here in verse 1, we see that we should be called children of God. This is a It's a passive verb. That means that we're passive in the action. It's not something we are doing. We don't don't call ourselves children of God. We don't attain this status for ourselves and work our way up to it. Rather, it's a status that is bestowed on us by God. Something that when we believe in Jesus for our salvation, he gives us this status. He calls us his children. So see this status that we have. See the love of God. Ponder this in your hearts, in your minds. Think about this when you go to sleep at night. Think about it when you wake up in the morning. Pray over this when you do your devotions. See how great the Father's love is for us. This is one of the fullest and one of the brightest manifestations of God's love. That he would take children of wrath Adopt them, call them his own, and make them his children. This is our status, children of God. If you have believed in Christ, that is your status that you live in now. Look how he ends verse 1 then. He says, The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. I love what John's kind of getting at here. He's saying that if we are God's children, if we have this status, he's implying that there should be something different about us. He's implying that we are different and distinct from the unbelieving world. We are distinct from those who are not yet God's children. And when you think about it, doesn't it make sense? Should not there be a distinction between children of wrath and children of God? So he's implying already in this verse that now that we have been called God's children, by his grace, God has bestowed this status on us. He's implying that we ought to live differently. As children of God, we ought to be different from the unbelieving world. We ought to have different priorities, different spending habits. We ought to use our time differently. We ought to parent differently. Kids, we ought to go to school differently. We ought to treat our classmates differently. We ought to to treat our teachers differently and do our homework differently. We ought to think differently. We ought to talk differently. And so, brothers and sisters, don't be surprised if the unbelieving world treats you as strange. If your unbelieving friends see your life and just don't quite know what to make of it. It's strange to the unbelieving world. The world does not know us because it does not know our Father. So we have a status. 
and having this status, we ought to live it out, so to speak. We ought to behave then as God's children because he has made us such. This brings us to verse 2. Not only do we have the status children of God, but we also have a destiny. Look at verse 2. Beloved. And by the way, don't you love how warmly he addresses his, his readers there, his brothers and sisters in Christ? He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. So he begins verse 2 by, by pointing us back to verse 1. We, he restates our status. We are God's children now. All right, then what? He goes on. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So, so catch what John is saying. He's saying that we already have this status, children of God. We already live in this status permanent status bestowed upon us by God. But he's saying that this was the beginning of God's work and it is not finished yet, that there's more that God is going to do in us. As children of God, our destiny, our inevitable future, our great end is to be conformed to the image of Christ. The end goal of the Christian life is to be like Jesus, to say it in, in the simplest terms. We know that because John says, what we will be has not yet appeared. But when we see him, that is Jesus, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. When he says that, this doesn't mean we'll become little gods. This doesn't, we won't, take on Jesus' divine nature. But he's saying that we will be like Jesus and that we will be holy as he is. We will take on his moral nature. His, his sinless perfection will be ours. And so on that day, when we see Jesus face to face, we will be freed from the sin that has plagued us since the moment of our conception. So, what sin are you struggling with right now? Maybe a sin you've kept secret for years, and you've battled it, and you've battled it, and you've battled it, and, you, and you've tried so hard to stop, and you just want to be free, and every time you tell yourself, this is the last time, I'm not going to do it anymore, but you just can't seem to be free, you just seem trapped in it. One day, you will see Jesus face to face and that sin will be obliterated at the sight of him. But it's not just sinful actions that we do. What, what sinful thoughts are you constantly trying to suppress in your mind when the, that thought comes into your mind and you have to take it captive and, and push it away? What sinful desires do you find in your hearts having to say, no, my heart wants to do that, but no, I, I have to suppress that. And we all live with this. One day, we will see Jesus face to face and every sinful thought, every sinful desire of our hearts will be obliterated at the sight of him. But there's more. How about the blind spots in your life? 
You, you know what I'm talking about? When you, you're, you're not trying to sin, you're not thinking about sin, you're not even feeling like sinning, you feel pretty good. You're like, I think I'm pretty good right now. Like, I feel pretty close to God. I feel like I'm walking out my life as a believer the way I should. I feel pretty good. And then you have a brother or sister come out and, and point out something in you. Maybe it's a, a personality tendency you have, the way you react to certain situations or, or a certain sinful attitude that you've been having. And they point this out to you lovingly, and all of a sudden you realize, I'm sinful beyond what I even realized. I'm not even trying to sin, not even thinking about sin or feeling like sinning, and yet I'm living in sin. And you think, well, will I ever be free from this? And the answer is yes. One day, we will see Jesus face to face as he is in his resurrected glory. And on that day, we will be made like him. There will not be an ounce of sinfulness left in us. Don Whitney says it like this. He says, on that day, we will be reflecting the glory of God from every cell and pore in our bodies. I let the reality of this sink into you. Now, one day, you, yes, you, Christian, will see Jesus as he is. You will stand and see him face to face in his glory. And you will be made like him. In an instant, that work will be finished. And you will be finally and perfectly conformed to his perfect image. And there will be sin no more. Not in action, not in thought or desire. In no way. And this is the destiny of every believer in Christ. This isn't for the select few. But this is the destiny of every Christian. Romans 8.29. We all know Romans 8.28. A great promise we we love to say. We know that all things work together for good for, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. A great promise, but... Romans 8.29 is is nearly an equally great promise. In that verse, Paul tells us that God has predestined his children to be conformed to the image of his son. He has determined that every Christian will be made like Jesus eventually. It's a sure thing. Philippians 1.6, Paul tells us that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God finishes what he starts. If you are a Christian, he has begun a good work in you. At the day of Christ, when he appears, you will see him face to face. He will finish that work. He has determined it from before the foundation of the world. He has promised to fulfill it. He will do it. It will happen. This is our destiny as Christians. The question then becomes, okay, this is our, we have this status, now children of God. We have this destiny. What then do we do until that day? How shall we then live here and now until that day when Jesus is revealed to us? And in verse 3, John tells us exactly what we should do in a very simple and straightforward way. Look at what he says in verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
In other words, as we wait for that day to come, we are not to just wait around passively. We don't just sit around and wait. Okay, well, someday I'm just going to be, you know, kind of beamed up to see Jesus face to face. And until then, I'm just going to kind of hang out, do whatever I want, live however I want. That's not what John says. Rather, he says, we are to get busy pursuing holiness and Christ-likeness here and now. It's almost as if in this verse, God is saying to us, one day, you, Christian, will be perfected in holiness. So let's get busy now. We have a status. We are children of God. We have a destiny. We will be like Jesus. And having this status and this destiny, we are to behave as God's children and to grow in our likeness to Christ here and now. See, our our hope for holiness in the future, our hope for holiness one day, drives us to holiness in the present. Our hope for holiness in the future drives us to holiness in the present. That's what John is calling us to do in verse 3. Everyone who has this hope will purify himself, make himself holy, will pursue Christ-likeness, just as Christ is holy, just as Christ is pure. Now, the beauty of this is that Jesus does not just give us the command of verse 3 and then leave us to do this in our own power. He doesn't say, okay, one day you're going to be made like me. In the meantime, I want you to pursue holiness. Good luck. Instead, what Jesus does is he says, one day you will be made like me. I'm going to give you my spirit to live in you now, and he will begin to make you more like me all the time. He will empower you to live in holiness. There is, if you are a Christian, do you realize there's another person living inside of you? Not an it. It's not an, he's not an impersonal force. There is a he, a person living inside of you. He is the Holy Spirit. And he lives in you. And he is not passive. He is at work, gradually making you more like Christ in your daily life. And I, I think there are, there are two ways, I, I, primarily, that I think the Holy Spirit works to make us more like Jesus. There, there are two primary ways he works to produce holiness in our lives. The first way, I think, is this. The Holy Spirit gives us new holy hungers that were not there before we knew Christ. As Christians now, we have desires for holiness in us that the Holy Spirit is producing that we did not have before we were Christians. Growing up, I was a relatively picky eater. Uh, There were a lot of things I wouldn't eat. And and one of the things I wouldn't eat was salad. And you know why I didn't eat salad? Because I didn't like salad. I didn't want salad. It didn't didn't look good to me. If I did try it, I didn't like it. I didn't understand why people got excited about a salad. Like, why would you want that? So we'd, we'd go to restaurants. My parents would get all excited because this restaurant has a salad bar. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know why you're excited about that. I'm excited because they have a cheeseburger and french fries. What's the draw to a salad? Why would you want that? But I vividly remember the day. 
I can tell you where I was. I can tell you the occasion when I walked into a banquet with my family and we go to the buffet line and at the front of the buffet line, there's a giant bowl of Caesar salad sitting there. And it was strange. I don't know why it happened. But for the very first time in my life, I looked at the salad and I had this distinct thought, I want that. I all of a sudden found this weird desire for salad. I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I want that salad. I think I'm going to get some and I think I'm going to eat it. And so I did. I put it on my plate. I take it back and I eat it and I liked it. And guess what? Since then, I've learned to like salad even more. I've acquired a taste for different kinds of salads, different kinds of dressings, different varieties. I might even get kind of excited if there's a salad bar at a restaurant now. Ten years ago, this would have been unheard of for me. That was foreign to me prior to that time. This is what the Holy Spirit begins to do in us when he enters us. He lives in us and he begins to give us new hungers for holiness that were not present before. They were foreign to us before we knew Christ. Maybe if you're a Christian, you've seen this in your own life. Where before you believed in Jesus, there were... You thought church was boring. I, don't, I have no desire to be at church. It's boring. The sermons are boring. The people are boring. The songs are boring. Why would I want to go? And then you came to know Christ, and all of a sudden you feel the Holy Spirit growing in you, this desire to be with holy people, to grow in holiness, to sing holy songs, to hear God's holy word, to worship at his holy throne. That kind of change doesn't just happen. It only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit in us producing those new desires. That's the first way I think the Holy Spirit empowers us to holiness. He begins to give us new desires. And we gradually feed those hungers and we grow in holiness. The second way the Holy Spirit empowers us for holiness is by actually producing the holy fruit in our lives. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, you might be familiar with this passage. It's the, the famous fruit of the Spirit passage. Uh, Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And his point in that verse is that that fruit in our lives is produced by the Holy Spirit in us. In other words, we don't just say, all right, I'm a, I'm a Christian now. I'm going to just grip my teeth and try really hard to be more loving, really hard to be more joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and to have more self-control. We can try that, but it's not going to work. What we have to do is, Paul says, walk by the Spirit. And as we learn to walk by the Spirit more, he will begin to produce that fruit in our lives. We will see ourselves gradually becoming more joyful, more loving, more peaceful, more patient, kinder. I almost said gooder. <laughs> More faithful, gentler. We'll find ourselves all of a sudden be able to control our, those sinful passions of our flesh more. But we can't produce this fruit. The Holy Spirit must produce this fruit. The question then is, how then do we walk by the Spirit, as Paul says? How do we walk by the Spirit so that he produces this fruit in our lives? And what I've learned and what I'm continuing to learn is that we, we walk by the Spirit by practicing the spiritual disciplines. 
That's kind of an old school term, but the the spiritual disciplines, you may have never heard them called that before, but these are the the practices that God has given to us that he has, has promised that will promote spiritual growth. We are to practice these corporately as God's people, what we're doing right now, and we are to practice them individually in our own personal lives. Things like Bible reading and, and prayer, worship, meditation on Scripture. It's not just reading a, a passage out of the Bible and then thinking, I don't even remember what I just read, but meditating on it, praying over a passage, memorizing Scripture, etc. We could name more things. But these are the means God has given us by which we walk by the Spirit. We do these things and we... we by doing this, we are almost feeding the holy hungers that the Spirit is giving us. He gives us these and we feed those so that they grow. And as they grow, he produces more and more fruit in our lives. So we ought, we ought not to be surprised as Christians when we spend so little time in the spiritual disciplines and then we see so little fruit in our lives. We must feed those holy hungers. We must discipline ourselves to walk by God's means of grace that the Holy Spirit will then produce fruit in our lives. Um, I don't know how much you know about Christian history, but it's fascinating when you kind of just read through and, and you see these names of people who did these just ridiculous things. God just bore amazing fruit through their lives and ministries. People like George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, uh, George Mueller. Uh, more recently, think of some of the big name people you see who just have very fruitful preaching ministries. And I found myself thinking as I look at these people, I think, like, how, how do they get like that? Like, how does, how does one become that passionate about God's word and about his gospel and about his kingdom? How does that happen? And I think what I'm beginning to realize is that the most extraordinary Christians are not those who have been extraordinarily gifted. They may be specially gifted in some ways. But what I'm finding is that the most extraordinary Christians and the most extraordinarily fruitful Christians are those who have been extraordinarily disciplined in feeding the holy hungers given to them by the Holy Spirit. You study these these people you see that they're, they're men and women of prayer. They're men and women of worship. They're men and women of God's word. They have, not that they have borne this fruit on their own, but they have disciplined themselves. They've learned to walk by the Spirit, and the Spirit has produced the fruit in their lives. And so I, I would encourage you, maybe as a practical thing, maybe kind of look back through Christian history. If you need specific names to look up, I can give you some names. Like George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, George. Look up George Mueller. And you'll be amazed at George Mueller's life. An ordinary man through whom God did amazing things because this man was disciplined to walk by the Spirit. 1 Timothy 4.7, Paul tells us to discipline ourselves for the sake of godliness. I discipline ourselves for the sake of godliness. So we, we walk by the Spirit. He gives us these holy hungers and desires, and we discipline ourselves to walk by the Spirit, knowing that he will then produce the fruit of holiness in our lives. He will make us more like Christ. 
And this is the duty of every Christian. Look at verse 3. He says, everyone who has this hope, every child of God, everyone who will eventually see Jesus and be made like him, every Christian, purify yourself as Christ is pure. Sometimes there's this, there's this kind of this thought that, that growing in holiness is an optional add-on for the super spiritual Christian. It's, it's for the pastors and for the, the missionaries, uh, for, the, for the elders, for the, for the deacons, for, for, for those in ministry or, or whoever. But it's, it's kind of optional for just the average, everyday, ordinary Christian. But John shows us here, this is the, this is the duty of every Christian Every Christian has this status. Every Christian has this destiny. And every Christian, therefore, has this duty to pursue holiness as Christ is pure and holy. Being a Christian is to grow in holiness. Because if we have truly believed in Jesus and been saved then the Holy Spirit has truly entered us. And if the Holy Spirit has truly entered us, then he has truly begun a good work of transformation in our lives. And we will be growing in holiness. This is a hard thing to say, and it may be a hard thing to hear, but I think it needs to be said and heard uh, from God's word. Uh, But if you call yourself a Christian... But you are no more like Christ than when you supposedly first became a Christian. Then God's word would question the legitimacy of your conversion. And I would have worries about your salvation. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us to examine ourselves to see that we are in the faith. In the book of 1 John, this is what 1 John is doing. He is writing to Christians, telling them this is the fruit of being a Christian. If you have this fruit in your life, you have the assurance that you belong to Christ. If this is not in your life, then there's reason for concern. So we examine ourselves. This doesn't mean that we will be perfect. This doesn't mean that Christians are perfect. In fact, in 1 John 1, 8, John says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Christians are not those who are perfect. Christians are not those who never sin and don't struggle with sin. Christians are those who are repentant. Those people who are becoming more like Christ progressively and gradually. Those who are learning to hate sin more, learning to love Christ more. Let me clarify one more thing. This is, John is not saying we are saved by our pursuit of holiness. This is not work salvation, he's saying. In fact, look at, just look at the order of these three verses. He begins in verse 1 by telling us of our status. You have this status already because you are God's children. We don't earn this status. It is given to us, bestowed upon us by his grace. His point is that having this status, because you have been saved by grace, therefore we ought to live out our faith in the pursuit of holiness. So he, John sees good works not as the root of salvation, not as the cause of salvation, but as the fruit of salvation. Right. In conclusion, let's review 
uh, our main points. Verse 1 and point 1, we have a status. We have been called God's children. We have been given this status by the grace of God. That moment you believed in Jesus, this status was bestowed upon you. You now live in this status. Verse 2 and point 2, we have a destiny. We are children of God now, but we are not yet a finished work. And the destiny of every Christian is to see Jesus as he is and to be made like him, perfected in holiness. And then point three and verse three, we have a duty. Our hope for future holiness drives us to pursue holiness here and now. And we do that by disciplining ourselves to feed the holy hungers the Spirit has given to us that he might bear more and more fruit through our lives. And this is the duty of every Christian. I want to close with an illustration that I hope will bring this all together for you while also sending you out with a renewed hope and a renewed commitment to holiness. Worship team, would you come forward as we close? Uh, so, so what season comes before spring? Winter. Not a trick question. Winter. The season of cold and darkness, and depression, and death. What season comes after spring? Summer. The season of warmth, and light, and joy, and life. And so in a sense, spring is nothing more than that transition between winter and summer. Between the season of death and the season of life. Do you know when the first day of spring was this year? Does anybody know that off the top of your head? It was Tuesday, March 20th. Now, I don't remember exactly what the weather was like, but how much more like spring did it appear on Tuesday, March 20th than on Monday, March 19th? Probably not much. It was probably 20 degrees and snowing. Do you know when the first day of summer is? Anybody? Officially? Thursday, June 21st. As you well know, in the month since Tuesday, March 20th, it's looked a lot more like winter than it has spring. Am I right? But... I found myself reminding myself of this the past month. No matter how it looked and fell outside... It was spring nonetheless. Because on Tuesday, March 20th, we received that new status, that new life, that new birth. We are in spring. And we've been living in that status ever since. It's been spring ever since then. And no matter what it looked like outside, no matter how cold it was, no matter how much snow came down, no matter how much it looked like winter, there were signs of spring all along. Signs that summer is coming. Trees are budding. Grass has started to turn green. The sun is rising earlier and setting later. You wake up in the morning and birds are chirping. And as much as it still felt like winter, those signs reminded me, and they should remind us, that we are headed for our destiny. Summer. So take heart, my friends. Summer is coming.
Now, how much more like spring does it look like today than it did on Tuesday, March 20th? A lot more. A lot more sun. More green grass. Warmer. Fast forward to a month from now. How much more like summer will it look like on May 22nd? A whole lot more. There will probably be, it may almost look like summer. It will be warm enough. And until summer comes, we will progressively look more and more like summer as we progressively leave winter behind. And when that comes, when summer is here, every vestige of winter will be destroyed. Every snowflake, all the icy cold, all the morning frost, every bitter wind, every brown and dead blade of grass, the barren trees, the darkness, the sadness will all be gone and it will be replaced by warmth and light and life and joy. Brothers and sisters, the summer of eternity is coming. If we are in Christ, we have passed from the death of winter to the new life of spring. And though it may still still feel as though we are in winter as we struggle with sin, we have this status, God's children. And we live in this status and we ought to remind ourselves of this status. And one day, we will see Jesus as he is. One day, summer will come and every vestige of sin and death's winter will be destroyed in an instant. Every sin, every sinful thought, every sinful desire, every weakness, every disease, every tear, every, even death itself will pass away and we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. Summer is coming. And so let us pursue holiness together and grow in holiness now as we await that day. Would you stand with me and pray? Father, we thank you for the status you've given us in your love. Help each and every one of us to go from here to think about this love, to meditate upon this glorious truth that you call us your children. Father, let us renew our hope that one day we will see Jesus as he is and be like him. Let this thought penetrate our hearts and minds and let it change us. And Lord, renew this hope in us and let us with this hope then purify ourselves and pursue holiness just as Christ is pure. Teach us to walk by your spirit that we might bear the fruit of holiness in our daily lives and that it all redound to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.